G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my great privilege to continue to look with you at the book of Micah, today chapter 4 verse 9 to chapter 5 verse 15. Can I encourage you please have your Bible open so you can read along with me as we read this passage, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Of course there's also the outline that's on the service program. Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, do please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we love your word, so that we understand your word, and so that we live our lives by your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My grandfather had a saying, if a job's worth doing, it's worth paying someone to do it for you. If a job's worth doing, it's worth paying someone to do it for you. As a consequence, my grandfather didn't really teach my dad any DIY skills, do-it-yourself skills. And certainly, by the time you get to me in the next generation, I am utterly useless. I don't know how anything works. I can't fix anything. I'm the ultimate DIY failure. But last year, I had the opportunity to deal with two amazing DIY people. A man called Jaime. Uh, Jaime actually used to be a member of our church many years ago. And Jaime's brother, Jose. Uh, I employed Jaime and Jose to... Uh, to, to renovate my mother-in-law's house. I have to say, I was, I was amazed by the breadth of their skills. I remember uh, going to the property with them and, 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 and looking, looking through it all. Um, it was very, very run down. And we kept on seeing jobs that needed doing. Uh, there were, um, for example, there were some walls, uh, walls that needed to be torn down and rebuilt. I said to Hosea, I guess... I guess you'll need a, a, a bricklayer for that. No, no, he said, we can do that ourselves. Uh, the kitchen, kitchen was a total disaster, just needed to be completely torn out and, and shifted to another part of the house and, and rebuilt. I said, you'll need um, plumber and carpenter and, 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 and a joiner. No, no, we can do that ourselves. The bathroom. Again, just needed to be completely torn out and then we needed to rebuild the back of the house and, and put a, uh, move the bathroom to the back section. I said, you'll need um, a tiler and... No, no, we can do that ourselves. Uh, the roof, roof was leaking, needed replacing. Do we need a roofer? We can do that ourselves. The house needed um, painting inside and out. Do we need a painter? You guessed it. No, no, we can do that ourselves. We had to, uh, we had to rip up the, the floorboards and uh, replace them and then cover the floors with uh, a kind of a, um, uh, like a floor, floor covering. I said, do we, do, we need, um, do we need carpet layers? We can do that ourselves. Uh, the garden needed to be totally stripped out and uh, redesigned and replaced. Do we need a landscaper? We can do that ourselves. You're getting the picture, getting the picture. Pretty much, pretty much everything, uh, almost every single job in that entire renovation, it was the same. They could do it all themselves. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic to have people like that on a renovation. And, uh, and, and they did. They did do an excellent job. But as we'll see in our passage from Micah today, when it comes to living life under God, there are some dangers 
if we think we can live without God's help. There are dangers for, um, for DIY people when it comes to God. Now, uh, to understand this passage, it's important that we get a little bit of historical background. During the time of Micah's ministry, the, the nation of Judah was not, um, it was not a terribly strong nation in terms of the, the nations around it. They kept on being threatened by nations around them who seemed more powerful. And so what they did to protect themselves, the Judeans, they, they kept on making alliances with other nations. They didn't rely on God, despite the fact that prophets kept on saying, just rely on God. They didn't rely on God. Instead, they, they did a kind of a do-it-yourself approach trying to make alliances with other nations. And as part of those alliances, um, what, what the Jews did, they, they would join in the worship of these, the, the gods of the other nations. So, for example, something that kept on happening through the time of Micah, um, the, the, the kings kept on allying themselves with the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the people of the northern kingdom at this stage, they worshipped golden calves and they were Baal worshippers as well. And so that started to creep into Judean worship. Also, very famously, there was a, a crisis under King Ahaz, one of the kings that Micah prophesied to. Now, the kings of Aram and, and the northern kingdom of Israel, they'd made an alliance and they decided to attack Judah. Prophets like Isaiah, they spoke to Ahaz. They said, Ahaz, God just wants you to trust him. But he wouldn't do it. Instead, what Ahaz did, he went to the king of Assyria. He made an alliance with him. And uh, then what he did is he made a, a copy of uh, an Assyrian idol altar and put it into God's temple in Jerusalem and offered sacrifices on it in God's temple to the Assyrian gods. As we come into chapter 4 of Micah, we're in the time of King Hezekiah, the, the last king that Micah prophesied to. Assyria have now decided to attack Judah. And Hezekiah has been desperately trying to make an alliance with them. He's, uh, he's, sent, uh, he's sent tribute to them. He's sent money to them. But nothing has worked. The, the Assyrian king, the Assyrian empire, they are determined that they're going to conquer not just the northern kingdom of Israel, but also the Jews as well. Hezekiah, he's, uh, he's also tried to enter an, an alliance with the nation of Babylon. And uh, again, the prophet Isaiah has spoken to him about it, and he's warned Hezekiah. He said, Hezekiah, Babylon is going to be the undoing of the Jews. In the future, Isaiah said, Babylon is going to be a way worse enemy than Assyria. Babylon is going to conquer Judah and take the nation into exile. So far in his book, Micah has talked about what will happen with the Assyrian attack. Micah has said that Assyria will, will conquer the northern kingdom of, of Samaria, of Israel. That, that's God's judgment on their, their wickedness and their idolatry. And Micah has also said that, that the Assyrians will conquer Judah all the way through to the very gates of Jerusalem itself. Now, that's God's judgment for their... Um, for, for, the, for the greed of, the, of these greedy landowners who've been exploiting the poor and vulnerable and for the failure of the leaders to, to protect the poor and vulnerable because they're all corrupted by money. Now in this next section, Micah does something quite similar to the prophet Isaiah. 
Uh, he prophesies about the present situation with Assyria and talks about how God will rescue the Jews from Assyria. But he also looks forward a hundred years to the situation with Babylon. Same thing that Isaiah does. So in this next section, there are four prophecies. Uh, the first three prophecies, they talk about now. That, that, that they all have now in them. But the thing about this now, it, it keeps on changing. Uh, so first of all, Micah talks about now, but he's talking about something that won't happen for another hundred years. It's the now of a hundred years' time when Babylon attack. But then for prophecies two and three, when he talks about now, he means now in his own day, while, while Assyria are attacking. It's quite unusual, but I guess when you're dealing with a God who knows the present and the future, that's the sort of thing that's possible. You can prophesy both about what is happening now and about what will happen in a hundred years. So three prophecies about now. And then there's a fourth prophecy. It's a prophecy about uh, the remnant of Jacob, the remnant of Jacob. So three now prophecies and a remnant prophecy. As you can see from, um, uh, from, the, from the section here in uh, chapter 4, um, if you look in verse 10 there, you'll see that this is, this is a prophecy about Babylon. It's, it's about the time when Judah will be exiled into Babylon. So as I say, we're jumping forward about 100 years. Micah pictures a future where Israel have no king, where they've been defeated and they've been sent into exile, where they're suffering in terrible agony. But um, as he looks forward to this time of, of, of Babylon, Micah has a message of hope. He says God is not going to abandon his people in exile. He's going to bring them home. Okay, let's have a look with me. Uh, let's have a look at the first now prophecy, Micah chapter 4 and verse 9. Micah chapter 4 and verse 9. Why do you now, notice the now, why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like a, that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. That's the first now prophecy. It talks about this now a hundred years into the future. In the second now prophecy, Micah talks about the current situation <coughs> that Israel and Judah are facing in his own day with, with the nation of Assyria attacking them. And Micah says that Zion, uh, that is Jerusalem, they will survive. Um, God's plan is that Assyria will not be able to destroy Jerusalem. Verse 11. But now... Now, uh, many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion. For I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hoofs of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Okay, so there's two now prophecies. The future now of, of uh, when they were going to exile to Babylon but then return and the present now of the Assyrian attack on Zion that's not going to succeed. So that brings us now to the, the third now prophecy. Uh, we're still in Micah's own day. Assyria has attacked and, and, and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They've been, uh, they've been right through Judah, conquering all the, all the towns all the way through, and now they've come right up to the gates of Jerusalem. They are 
Um, they, they, they've surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under siege from the Assyrians. Uh, their king, it says here, is being shamed. It talks about him being struck on the cheek with a rod. He's been shamed before his people. And that's because Assyria is, is mocking the king. But God says that this king, born in Bethlehem, he will reign. Israel will be abandoned, but this, this king will deliver Jerusalem from her enemies. And he'll go on to rule not just Jerusalem and not just Judah and not just Samaria and not just Assyria, but the whole world. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. So notice the now and notice the siege that we're in. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. He will be shamed. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. So there's the third now prophecy. Uh, Assyria comes, they conquer, they besiege Jerusalem, but God will raise up this king from Bethlehem to save them. Okay, so there's the three now prophecies. Uh, firstly, the the looking to the future, to Babylon, to the exile and return. And then looking to the present, the current situation about Assyria, uh, God says uh, Assyria will be defeated, that God, he'll, he'll raise up a king to who will rescue the Jews. Well, now in the final prophecy that we're looking at today, Micah talks about the remnant of Jacob. Uh, a remnant, that's the people who remain, uh, the people who survive after they've been attacked. Now, in context here, I think Micah's talking about uh, both of the times that he's been prophesying about, about, both the remnant who survived the Babylonian attack, but also the remnant who survived the Assyrian attack. Because what Micah is doing, he, he, he's speaking more generally about what it is that God wants from those people who remain, what it is that God wants from his remnant. Um, and here's the point, here's the point that uh, Micah makes. God wants them to be a people who rely on him. He doesn't want them to be a do-it-yourself people. He doesn't want them to ignore him. He doesn't want them to forget about him. And when they're in trouble, he doesn't want them to, to rely on themselves and their own strength. And he doesn't want them to rely on other nations and alliances. And he doesn't want, to rely on, he doesn't want them to rely on the, the false gods and idols of the other nations. God wants them to be a remnant who rely on him, not on people. Verse 7. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. 
do not wait for anyone or depend on man. Now God says, this remnant, they will eventually have victory. They're not going to be in exile forever. Verse 8. Now the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. Eventually the remnant will have victory. But until then, God has this lesson for his people. He wants them to rely on him. And the way that he's going to teach them that, the way that he's going to teach them this lesson is the hard way. He's going to teach them to rely on him alone by taking away everything else that they're tempted to rely on. Now, first, God says he's going to take away their weapons. He's going to take away their city walls so they cannot rely on themselves. Verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I'll destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. Nothing left for them to rely on in themselves. Uh, God said he's also going to take away all their idols and witchcraft that they've brought in from these other nations. Verse 12. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you and you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. Take away their own strength. Take away any idols. And God says he's going to destroy all the other nations that don't serve him as well. So Judah cannot rely on alliances with them anymore. Verse 15, I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Do you see what God's doing? He's taking away everything else that the Jews rely on. No more weapons of war. No more city walls. No more idols. No more nations. There's no alliance that's left that's possible. There are no people left to rely on. God's people are left with only God to rely on. Because that is what he wants. He wants a people, verse 7, who do not wait for anyone or depend on man. All right. Can you see what's here then in this section of Micah? Four prophecies. A prophecy, a prophecy about how Judah will go into ex exile in Babylon and then return 100 years down the track. Uh, two prophecies about how God will uh, rescue Jerusalem from the Assyrian attack that is coming on them. He'll raise up a king and rescue them. And then finally, this fourth prophecy about God's plan for his remnant. He wants them to trust in him. He doesn't want them to trust in themselves or idols or other people. And so he's going to take them all away because he wants a remnant who will trust in him. Well, friends, the reason Micah is in the Bible is because his prophecies came true. In Micah's day, he did raise up King Hezekiah of Judah and he rescued Jerusalem from the Assyrian siege. A hundred years later... God did exactly what Micah said. He sent Judah into exile in Babylon and then he brought them back from exile. But not all of Micah's prophecies here were um, fully fulfilled, you might say. Hezekiah, good king, rescued uh, Israel, rescued the Jews from Assyria, but he never quite lived up to Micah's prophecy here. Israel, they never lived securely under a king whose greatness reached to the ends of the earth. They never became the kind of the world power that Micah prophesied. Instead, what happened is um, the Jews, they went on to suffer under one, one foreign empire after another. So Assyria came and went. 
Babylon came and went, but that wasn't the end. Then came the Persian Empire. The Jews were still in, slaves, in, in slavery. Then came the Greek Empire, and then came the Roman Empire. And for hundreds of years, the Jews suffered, never, never truly free. They never had a king who, who, who lived up to Micah's prophecy here. Seven hundred years later, after uh, seven hundred years after Micah gave these prophecies, um, the Jews were being ruled over by the Empire of Rome. The king who represented Rome was a king called King Herod. Uh, some astrologers came to King Herod, and they said, "The king of the Jews has been born. The the, the stars in the sky show it." Herod was struck by this and, and, and so he called the, the Jewish religious leaders and he said what, what's going on here where is this king going to be born what did the religious leaders do they turned to this prophecy in Micah they said to Herod on the basis of this prophecy in Micah that God's king who will rule the world that the king of the Jews will, will be born in Bethlehem why did they use Micah's prophecy why did they think it was still relevant 700 years later because they were still waiting for it to be fully fulfilled. They were waiting for God to raise up a king, a Messiah, from Bethlehem who would, who would finally set God's people free, who would, who would rule the world forever, a, a king who would bring eternal peace and security. You know who that king is, don't you? Born in Bethlehem, just like Micah prophesied, born to be our king the king who will rescue us from all our enemies, the, the king who will give us ultimate freedom, the king who will rescue us even from sin and death and the devil, the, the, the king who will give us peace and security in, in, in a new heaven and earth. Jesus is this king, isn't he? And so what Micah has given us here is, uh, it's not just a, a, a prophecy for the Jews of his day and how King Hezekiah will rescue them. This is a prophecy for us, a beautiful prophecy about King Jesus, our eternal king who will rescue us and rule us forever. But, but, but as we come to think about applying this passage to ourselves, the, the thing that strikes me is this. It's, it's what God wants from his people, from, from his remnant. Why did God punish his people with the Assyrians? Why did he destroy Judah with the Babylonians? Why did he leave only a remnant? Why did he take away their weapons and their, their city walls? Why did he take away their idols? Why did he take away the nations around them that they were relying on him? Why? That they were relying on why? Because, because he wants a people who will trust him. He doesn't want a people who rely on themselves who think that they can do it all themselves. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want a people who rely on other people instead of God, and he certainly doesn't want a people who rely on other gods instead of the true God. God wants a people who will trust in him. What would that look like for you, do you think? What would it look like in your life? What would it look like if you genuinely relied on God not on yourself or other people or false gods. The other day I was talking to a man from our church. I originally met him a few years ago. He started coming to church here. Back when I first met him, we, we, we caught up for lunch. And I asked him, I said, uh, do, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? 
he said to me, he said, um, I hope so. He said, I don't know, but I hope so. I said, well, if you were to die and, and you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I allow you into heaven? What, what would you say to him? And this guy, he talked about all sorts of stuff. He talked about his great uncle who was a Presbyterian minister. He talked about how he tries to be a good husband. He tries to be a good father. He talked about how he tries to be honest at work. And, and, and he said, but, you know, the thing is, that's why I've started coming to church, so that my family and I will know how to, how to live a good life so that, so that God will be happy with us. Well, the man and his family have, uh, have been coming to our church now for, uh, for, for a few years. And the other day I had another opportunity to, to catch up with him. And uh, so I said to him, I said, mate, a few years ago we, uh, when we met up, I, I asked you a couple of questions. I asked you um, if, I, I asked you, do you remember, if you thought you would go to heaven when you die? And you said, do you remember? You said, I hope so. I don't know so, but I hope so. I said, well, you've been at church for a few years now. Would you say that your answer has changed? He said, he said, absolutely. He said, my answer is totally different. I am now certain that God will accept me into heaven. I said, okay. That's good. So, so if you were to die now and you were to stand before God and he were to say, um, why would I let you into heaven? Heaven's perfect. There's no sin here. Why would I let you in? What, what would you say? He said, he said, I'd say that I'm a hopeless sinner who's had all his sin taken away by the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'd say to God, I can be in heaven only because of what Jesus has done. I'm relying on him. I'm not relying on me. I have to admit, I shed a tear because, because that's what it looks like to be relying on God for salvation, doesn't it? That, that, that is exactly what God is trying to achieve in our lives. It's exactly what God was trying to achieve in the lives of his people here. And it's exactly what God is trying to achieve in our lives. He doesn't want us to be DIY people when it comes to salvation. He doesn't want us to think we can earn our salvation by by any other people or by anything that we do. He, he, God wants us to rely on what he's done for us in Jesus, not on ourselves. But you know what, friends, this doesn't just apply to salvation. This applies to all of our lives under God. The other day I caught up with another bloke. Um, he, many years ago, was, was quite, quite successful, uh, wealthy and well-respected. But he decided that he would uh, quit his job and uh, become a, a full-time Christian minister. Well, since then, uh, since then, it seems like everything has gone wrong. He and his wife had four kids, and uh, two of whom, it's, it turns out, are significantly disabled. His wife was struck down with postnatal depression. She's never really recovered. Uh, both his parents, he, he ended up going uh, a fair way away to do ministry. And uh, while he was away, both his parents, who he was very close to, died. And ministry has proved to be a real struggle for him. In fact, uh, there are two churches that he's had to leave because of terrible conflict and opposition that he's faced. He's tried to really bring the gospel to churches that haven't had it before, had terrible conflict, terrible opposition, and he's been chucked out of two churches. Uh, the thing is, when I talked to this bloke, 
I've, I've never met anyone like him. It's, it's like he was glowing with joy. I don't think he was putting it on. He, he seems to have in himself this deep contentment and joy, which kind of flows out in just a kindness and a love for people that's, that's quite extraordinary. And I, I talked to him, I asked him about, well, tell me about all this terrible stuff that's been happening in your life. I, I said to him, how do you cope? You, you, seem so, you seem so happy. He said to me, Jeff, my, my key verse, my life verse is Philippians 4, 4 to 7, where, where God says you've got to rejoice in the Lord always. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and God's amazing peace will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He said, that's what I do. He said, when I'm stressed, I pray to God. I, I, I give it all to him. And I don't, just, I don't just pray and ask him. I also remember to thank him. And when, when I start thanking him for all of the good things that he's given me, for the life that I have, for every breath that I have, for the privilege of being able to serve him, for the fact of Jesus dying and rising again, for his constant love, for the beautiful future that he has for us. The, uh, the moment I start thanking him for all the good things, especially through Jesus, you know what? I soon get perspective. I soon remember what a total privilege and blessing it is to be God's person. And, and, and his peace really does guard my heart. And, and, and I really do rejoice. That's what it looks like, friends. That's what God is looking for in his remnant here in Micah. Look, it's, it's fine to be a DIY person when it comes to fixing your house. Great. But when it comes to life under God, we don't want to be DIY types. God is looking for people who, who trust him. Friends, let's learn this lesson from, from Micah. Let's learn this lesson and let's, let's trust him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you are the only one worthy of our trust. You're the only one who can give us our next breath. You're the only one who can sustain us through this life. And you're the one who has prepared for us a, a glorious inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. Will you help us please? to rely on you uh, to save us and for eternal life. And we help us to, to turn to you in uh, all the circumstances of our lives. Help us not to, uh, not, not to rely on ourselves, but to recognize that you are in sovereign control and, and so to rely on you. Uh, help us to do this, we pray, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.